Uh, the talk is about understanding multidimensional levels of reality or our next breath. I'd like to begin with uh, parts of a poem called The Flowers Poem. And it's an anonymous uh, Japanese poem. And it uh, touches into the heart of us living in multi-dimensional levels of existence. The Flowers Poem. The world is a flower. Gods are flowers. Enlightened ones are flowers. All phenomena are flowers. Red flowers, white flowers, green flowers, yellow flowers, black flowers. All the different kinds of the colors of flowers. All the different kinds of loves shining forth. Life unfolds from life and returns to life. Such an immense universe. Oh, many lives. Flowers of gratitude. Flowers of sorrow. Flowers of suffering. Flowers of joy. Laughter's flowers. Anger's flowers. Heaven's flowers hell's flowers, each connected to the others and each making the others grow. There is death and there is life. There is no death and no life. There is changing life. There is unchanging life. Flowers change color moment by moment. From nowhere you came to nowhere you go, you stay nowhere. You are nowhere attached. You occupy everything. You occupy nothing. You are the becoming of indescribable change. You are love. You are the flower. kind of mysterious, huh? We live in that world. Flowers changing color moment by moment. How quickly we can go from anger to love. To anger <laughs> to love. The Buddha was asked, how long does our life remain? <coughs> He answered, your next breath. Can we grasp that? How long? How long does our life remain? Our next breath. And so we get that sense of living a way of life with this full presence, not lost in the past, not lost in the future, but to be present fully, you know, this is what that poem is all about. So we can ask ourselves, how long will it take 
for me to understand this and live by this? You know, how long will it take me to be free? Not long. Just until our next breath happens by itself. How long, maybe, until we are there again with our next step? You know, this practice really, truly is step by step, breath by breath. One time, I was listening to Sayadaw Upandita describe this process of understanding, developing, and he said it was like if you had a very wide bottom vase, a very big vase, but a very small opening at the top of the vase. And, and so that to get water in the vase, you'd have to just make sure it went in drop by drop by drop. But eventually, the vase would fill with water. And he said that the practice was like that, that our understanding developed drop by drop by drop. It sinks in that way. And slowly, we start to understand that we have all the time in the world when we see from a timeless space, and that we're very impatient, and that we don't have much time at all when we're coming from a relative level, or when we're caught in time, space. This is a passage called Difficult to Do, from the Samyutta Nikaya. A wanderer asked Venerable Sariputta, the Buddha's disciple, he said, Friend Sariputta, what is difficult to do in this Dhamma? And he said, going forth, friend, is difficult to do in this dhamma and discipline. The wanderer said again, what, friend, is difficult to do by one who has gone forth? And he said, to find delight, friend, is difficult to do by one who has gone forth. Have you found delight yet? And then he said, what, friend, is difficult to do? by one who has found delight. And Sariputta said, practice in accordance with the Dhamma, friend, is difficult to do by one who has found delight. And then he said, but, friend, if a person is practicing in accordance with the Dhamma, would it take one long to become an arahant, fully enlightened? And Sariputta said, not long, friend. Not long, until your next breath. That's how freedom happens, in a flash. The mind or heart is vast, and the levels of oppression are vast, inner and outer. And one way that we can grasp what freedom is, is that actually we're um, learning here to die for our freedom. Each moment that you really, truly die to the past, die to the future, you can be fully present. There's no separate self when, it, when there is that um, temporary death. And so from one level of reality, 
we start to see that freedom doesn't depend on conditions. It's not dependent on what a certain experience is, but that freedom means letting go, totally letting go in one moment. And we might say that human beings tend to not like to let go of everything. You know, you can see at times that we've really let go, but maybe we're still withholding a little bit. (laughs) There's still that bit of holding. And then we just try to be mindful of that. Ram Dass's teacher, Maharaji, um, the day that he died, left his ashram um, just like any old day, just a normal, ordinary day. Uh, But it was the day that he died. And when he left the ashram, he said to everyone, today I'm out of central prison forever. Done is what had to be done. You know, can you imagine what that must feel like? We have these glimpses of moments when we're free, when we let go. We're out of central prison for a moment. But to say, done is what had to be done, to say, today, I'm out of of prison forever. (laughs) You know, that's a great thing to be able to say. But then we might think, but what about me? (laughs) How long for me? You know, we get caught again in time. Instead of having that sense of, oh, in the timeless world, it doesn't matter. You have all the time you need. So we tend to want to get our practice over with (laughs) rather than seeing it as a way of life, you know? And that's the whole little secret. (laughs) So we want to get out of central prison now forever rather than having that sense of, oh, this is a way of life, a way of life. The mindfulness practice, or whatever you want to call mindfulness, because we all have our special names of what present time awareness is that we relate to or connect to, Uh, but we can say that this present time awareness is a path on which to travel, whether it's timeless or caught in time. It's really a path. And how long does our life remain? Well, really, until our next breath. That's all. And if we understand that, we'll understand that each human being has the capacity to die for their freedom, and that that gives us a great dignity and nobility. That dignity comes each moment when we investigate, well, what's happening in this moment? when we wake up, and it's waking up to the sense of imprisonment, imprisonment, what is a separate self, you know, and we we start to get that it's not a permanent prison. Any moment that we turn and we, we, we have that sense of present time awareness and we're not identified with what's happen in, happening in the moment, We are out of central prison in that moment. So we start to understand that what we call I or me or you 
or mine is just a temporary moment of identification with aversion, or a temporary moment or moments of identification with attachment or delusion. My mother uh, loved to play uh, Billie Holiday when I was a little girl. And there was um, a song that I liked a lot where she said, or saying, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody in this room wants to be free, but that price of letting go of the past or future in one moment, do we dare? Just in one moment. But when we really let go, it, we can't say to ourselves, well, Michelle, if you let go, it's just for this moment. You don't have to do it for the rest of your life. That's still holding back, yeah? You know, it, it requires that sense of really deeply letting go, fully. So part of the practice is to understand, well, what, what is life? What is death? What is freedom? And what do we let go of? And of course, what we start to understand is we're letting go of the illusion of a separate self. It's like we're letting go of the illusion of the fairy tale about what we think life to be. And so all that we lose is wrong view. No seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, thinking, smelling. Life goes on. And so we have that sense if we let go, we might lose something. But life will go on. And yet, what do we lose? What do we let go of? This is the real important question for us. Uh, so the practice is really the willingness to face, you know, over and over those temporary moments of holding and to see if we can be okay with those and start to learn to understand that they're just temporary moments of not seeing clearly, lost in the illusion. Um, there was a great teacher, Ramana Maharshi, in India, and when he was about to die, his disciples were really upset and were crying. And he just looked at them incredulously, like, you know, he just said, where could I possibly go? <laughs> you know, it's such a good question. You know, where, where, where did he go? You know, where do we go? Uh, you know, and it was just, he was so clear that he wasn't going anywhere, that he couldn't believe they were crying. So a good question is that, you know, at, at our death moment, what can we really bring with us? And at our birth moment, what do we bring with us? And even in the present moment, what are we carrying with us, really? You know, what can we truly carry? The metaphor that I gave um, during one of my talks about reality being similar to a movie, 
and if we go into a movie theater, we tend to get really identified with the story. Uh, and we can see as we're sitting here or walking how we do that, how we easily get involved in our own movie. And we don't stop to ask ourselves, well, <laughs> what's the movie screen? What's the projector? You know, what's the film? You know, what, what's going on here? And we do start to get a sense at times that the freedom can happen with just being aware of one step when we're not identified with that experience as being I or me. Any time that we're caught in past or future or concept, we would call that living in the relative level of existence. And any time we've stepped back and we have a sense of not being lost in the past or future, when we really, even if it's a moment, we're living with present time awareness, it's timeless. And on, on the deepest level, we would describe that as the absolute level of existence. You know, so we, we talk about the relative level of existence and the absolute level of existence. But there are many dimensions of this. It's not like it's so solidly one or the other. There are many layers of reality, and hence this word multidimensional. We live in multidimensional levels of reality. And what's difficult for us to grasp is that they're all present in one moment. If they weren't present all in one moment, we couldn't possibly be free. We wouldn't have memory. So sometimes I like to use an example or metaphor of an elevator for um, understanding that all levels of reality are present in one moment. You know, so this is just a metaphor, and there are problems with it. <laughs> but just, you know, humor me for, a mo you know, for some moments, and just imagine that the 10th floor of the elevator, there's only 10, but, you know, there's really thousands, but say the 10th floor is the relative level, and that's the world of concept. You know, so that's, as you know, you know, when we ring the bell, and you run out, to lunch or the walking place, you know, that's that sense of that's a bell and that's what time it is and I'm going to lunch or I'm going to go walk or whatever. That's the relative level of existence. And understand that really what these different layers of reality are, are, are really just ways of understanding reality. Uh, so you'd say that the tenth floor is really believing in our conceptual knowledge and not having any space around it. So there'd just be this sense of separate, solid things in the universe. In, in other ways, you know, I think it's important to realize that we tend to reject this layer of reality the longer we're on a retreat. You know, so when we say, oh, that's a sunset, or, or that's a bell, you know, somehow we think that that's somehow a lower, lesser way of understanding the world. And it's kind of funny, because it's a useful way of living in the world, 
It's just that it becomes a prison for us if it becomes the only level we're living in. Uh, so it's very helpful to remember that we're not trying to get rid of this tenth floor. In fact, sometimes if you're on the third floor, you're going to be pushing that tenth floor button a lot and saying, I don't want to be on the tenth floor. I don't like it here on the third floor. It's too scary. It's not solid enough. You know, so remember that that tenth floor is always available. It's not like if you start having things happen where it starts to get less solid, that suddenly that's gone and lost to you forever. I used to have that experience in retreat at times where I'd get kind of concentrated and I had these kind of deep experiences and I'd believe that I was going to live in that place forever and I'd terrify myself. And then all too quickly, you know, all too quickly, my personality would come back, you know, full-on force. Everything would become, I used to call it, you know, like Star Trek, you know, the gravity boots would come back and everything would be all too ordinary, you know, and I'd be bored again, you know, just within an hour. You know, it would be incredible to go from, oh boy, I like this layer of reality, this is great, to, oh no, I'm going to be here forever, and then, oh no, I'm back to this boring place again. You know, it's amazing how we judge these different places and practice. So there's the tenth floor, and then I'm not trying to make any kind of... Um, solid metaphor with this elevator. So say you get to ninth floor, eighth floor, seventh floor, that's the sense that you start noticing instead of the body seeming like a solid separate body, you start noticing not just shape and form, but you start noticing, you know, that temperature, you know, more like the earth element, hardness, softness, you start to get that the body is just a transforming process of sensations. And we can call it earth, air, water, and fire, but really it's just this experience of the sensations of warmth or coolness or cold, burning, you know, that fluctuation, change. Um, and then we start to notice that thoughts are really out of our control, coming and going by themselves, and emotions are really out of our control. Uh, and so this is, again, an understanding about the body and mind that starts to happen as we are in the present time. Awareness. And then maybe we get down to about the fifth floor, uh, and we really see that everything is coming and going. And there's a spaciousness around that. And sometimes around this floor, joy and sorrow can become more intense. somewhere around this floor, maybe it's the fourth floor, but fifth, sixth floor, we really start experiencing the body more as like an energy body than as a solid form. You know, the closest we could describe that as an energy body, uh, but it really doesn't appear to us as solid, especially when we close our eyes. You know, it's often when we open our eyes and peek to see, is it really, you know, it's funny how we're perceiving it as sensation is very different than how we would see it visually. When we're experiencing the body more as an energy body, as a flow of sensation, we can often get caught in that as a place of um, 
working things out. And uh, we might forget that um, we don't have to change the body to be liberated. We don't have to get rid of that neck pain or that chronic pain, you know, where, wherever it is in your body, that old, old friend. <laughs> we tend to get caught in this layer of reality, thinking that if we just stay with it and the pain goes away, then we're going to get liberated. And that's not true. This is just a layer of reality. Often healing happens in the body and this layer of reality, and that's true too. You know, so it can be very seductive to spend a lot of time in this layer of reality, uh, and it's not so much that we reject it or get attached to it, but we learn to move in and out of this layer. Sometimes I would say that as you go in deeper down through the elevator, one would, one would usually go through this layer of reality, and sometimes on your way out, but it's a place to learn to navigate. It's often where we notice karmic knots, emotional, mental, um, physical. And, and then when we have this way that we perceive ourselves, it's almost like we're perceiving how we're wired. So if we look in this room, we can see electricity is happening. We can see the lights on. But we don't tend to see the wiring. When this building was built, there were all these wires put in, and then the, they were covered over. Well, in a way, when we took birth and in our early years, due to certain conditions, our body was wired a certain way. Uh, and in this layer of reality, or maybe the fourth floor, we tend to tune into it. And this is where you can really explore aversion and <laughs> attachment. <laughs> because it, when we say to ourselves, oh no, I'm still having this experience. Usually that's because we're in that layer, and we think it should be gone already. And yet it's a kind of wiring, and however we're wired is okay. I probably wouldn't recommend that you get a full body transplant to be liberated, although it'll feel sometimes like that might be the only way. You know, it isn't. It's your way. Whatever, however your body is, is your way. Uh, so you learn how to navigate through these places. And again, it's not to reject it, but it's not to get attached. And if we f feel like we're getting caught there, it's just good to, you know, at some point at the end of a sitting, just to get up and walk, usually to walk a little more quickly, so that you, you just cut through that sense of identification with the body being a certain way. If you start getting down to the lower floors, and again, this is just a metaphor, but the body starts to really get light. You know, one won't feel so caught in those layers um, of wiring, and it's like things are dissolving. The mind is light, so the, the awareness is refined and light, so what's appearing is refined and light. Again, it's easy to think that that's how the practice should be, but it's just another way of perceiving and understanding life. We can get attached to anything, uh, and often, um, you know, we tune into a kind of 
we often drop into a kind of pure motivation in practice here. And, and of course, there's, there's no floor. <laughs> you can get to the first floor, no floor. Uh, and remember that there's nowhere to go. It's all here. All these floors are here in a moment. And you can switch levels. You can go from 10 to no floor in a second. You can go from first floor to 10th floor in a second. It's a pretty wild world, this multi-dimensional level that we live in, or levels that we live in. The most important thing to remember is that they're just different ways of understanding reality or the truth. So I think of dukkha as being identified with any floor of the elevator. Identification with the relative level or the absolute level is suffering. And you don't have to be on the second floor to be liberated. Awakening can happen on any floor. You know, if, if desire is happening in the moment, wanting, if you become mindful of it in that moment, you're free. You don't have to be having this dissolved light stuff happening. It could be a very deep contraction in the heart. And if you bring mindfulness to it, you're free. Uh, so we can get caught in, in the, our ideas about liberation, but in, we can be liberated in daily life as we're walking into our car or washing a dish. It's not dependent on a retreat. It's really very important for us to remember that liberation can happen at any moment. And it happens when we're where we are. Over and over again, it's that sense of just remembering, oh, wherever I am is okay. You know, wherever I am is okay. Whatever's happening is okay. That that's the vehicle for liberation. So since all levels of reality are present in a moment, then we can ask ourselves, you know, what is learning skill in meditation? You know, skillful means, uh, means that we're applying uh, different ways of being with our experience according to whatever floor we're on. You know, this is very important. So if we're tired or we have low energy, we, we know that we're more vulnerable to the hindrances, that there's not as much possibility for continuous mindfulness. When we're awake and the practice is more effortless, when we have high energy, we're usually less vulnerable to the hindrances. The practice often will appear to us to be very different at those times, but we can learn to be free whatever's happening low energy, high energy, top floor, middle floor, bottom floor. So different kinds of effort are required at different times. And I think that um, at this point in the retreat, I know a lot of you really understand this, you know, that sometimes it's really important to be heroic and sometimes it's really important to back off. Uh, and that, that really took me a long time to understand. And I think it's it's often can be interesting uh, to challenge ourselves a little bit, to 
to have fun and explore our own minds, explore where, you know, places that maybe we're shy of because we're afraid. You know, so I feel like I really had to explore uh, heroic energy and get really out of balance with it. And I explored backing off and I got really out of balance with it. And that was okay. When Mahasi Sayadaw came to IMS, um, I was cooking for, for him and the yogis, but I would listen in on question and answer periods with him. And one time um, he said something that was like a seed that was planted or like one of those drops that goes into the vase and kind of sinks in. Somebody was talking about, you know, just sitting and how long to sit. And he said, well, why get up? You know, why, why do you get up from a sitting? And it really had an impact on me, like, well, why do I get up from a sitting? Um, and there was one retreat where, I'm not saying to do this because I really got out of balance, but <laughs> it was like I decided just to see what it would be like not to get up, and not to get up, and not to get up. And it came, in a, it came in a very pure way, so it wasn't like I was forcing anything. But I sat for a really long time. I mean, unthinkably long. And it was so interesting for me. Like, I feel like I learned I could sit through anything. Anything. Uh, and this is very important for us. It's not like I sat there analyzing, well, it looks like the energy is going down, I better get up, or, you know, it looks like the concentration is not so good, so I better do a little slow walking or something. I just didn't do any of that. I just sat there and sat there and sat there, and everything happened. I fell asleep. I got restless. I was quiet. Metta came, Metta went, aversion came. It was amazing. Everything happened, came and went, and it was such a relief to feel like I didn't have to get up. I didn't have to run away from anything. You know, so that we all have our ways of getting comfortable in the practice and getting kind of comfortable in our routines. And sometimes it's really good to stretch a bit. I had a woman that came to her first course two years ago at, at a, like a seven-day retreat in California. Uh, and was so afraid to sit the late night sitting that she just asked me on my way in when I was sitting the late night sitting, she asked me just to look in her eyes on the way in to give her just a sense that, yeah, she could do it. And she did it. And she was terrified of falling asleep during the sitting. She was terrified of the pain. Uh, and then the next year, this year, she came to the same retreat uh, and she was so proud of herself. She didn't talk about it with me at all, but at the end of the retreat she came up to me and she was so excited and so confident. She said, oh, I stayed up every night to 11. And, you know, it was like that feeling for her of being able to have confidence in herself to face the fear and work with it. I'm not saying she stayed up all night, but for her that stretch was really significant. 
And for us, maybe we listen to that and we think, well, 11 o'clock, that's not so much a big deal. But for us somewhere, there's something that would be a little bit of a stretch. You know, and that, that's what can be so fun and interesting in practice. There were other ways in practice that I had to stretch around backing off. And so I used to feel like I had to hide whenever I did something that didn't look like, you know, the practice. And so there were times in practice where I really had to back off. I mean, really had to back off. Um, Just so significantly different than what the practice looked. And at first, it was horrifying. You know, I would sneak out of this building when no one was looking (laughs) to take a walk. And I would kind of sneak and take a cup of tea. It was just as hard a stretch for me. You know, I sat 12 hours without moving, and then I had to not do the form hardly at all. And they were both a stretch because I was identified with both. You know, so you really have to look at your own practice and see where you are. And there's a purity in that. You know, there's a purity of just seeing, well, where am I needing to stretch? And to enjoy and to enjoy that exploration. So we can get attached or aversive to any floor of the elevator and want to press another button. Um, For example, we might be in a really quiet place you know, and kind of be sailing along invincibly. And there can just be one little thought, like, you know, I really want blah, blah, blah. And if we believe that one thought, we go from the first floor to the tenth floor in one second. And it could be a thought about food, it could be a thought about sex, it could be a thought about clothes, it could be a thought about a good sitting, it could be a thought about the moment before, But if we believe that thought, (laughs) we've gone from first floor to the tenth floor, you know, and then it can be that next, maybe minute, we might be lost in that wanting, and then maybe we see it clearly, let it go, and we've dropped down to the first floor again. That's how quickly it changes. Isn't it fun? How quickly we change dimensions, understandings. Now, so ultimately, the truth is, is that things change, and they're out of control, and they can change very quickly. I had an experience in um, the mountains of New Mexico, not this summer, but the summer before, uh, and I don't know, you know, 9,000, 10,000 feet very well. It's the climate I know the least. Uh, And we got to this retreat a few hours early, which was unusual. And I had this great chance to go out to explore, you know, in a way that I don't get to when I'm teaching a retreat. Uh, So I didn't listen to my intuition. I'd been busy. I hadn't been really that present in, in listening to my intuition. And I went to this person who worked at this place instead of listening to myself. And I said, 
what's the weather going to be like this afternoon? And he said, oh, the weather report says it's fine. Don't worry. It's a nice day. Don't worry about anything. And I said, but inside I was thinking, hmm, but I didn't listen to it, and I listened to him. And then I said, well, which way do you think you'd go today, you know, up, upstream or downstream? And he said, oh, go downstream. Everything in me was saying go upstream, but did I listen? No, I went downstream. So I hiked for two hours downstream, and I think I have this really um, funny thing where I think I get acclimatized wherever I am by jumping in the water. And I'm, you know, I've got Honolulu blood, and so I jumped in the stream, and <laughs> that was the beginning of the, you know, bad moves. And I was freezing. I mean, I went all the way under, and it was so cold, it was extraordinary. So then I put on my um, sleeveless shirt and my shorts, and this, the ultimate thunder and lightning storm rolled in. I mean, it was quintessential death you know, lightning. It was truly, I mean, I can't believe I lived through this thing. Uh, and <laughs> I have nothing, right? My shorts, I'm freezing cold, and this thing was in, and I don't really know about, like, well, where do you go? You know, doesn't look very good where I am. You know, so I, t I got under this tree, you know, which was probably not the best place, but I couldn't see anywhere else to go. And, you know, the roots are all going down, and for two hours, this lightning was hitting all around me. I mean, it was truly extraordinary. And so um, I'd say I got caught in the 10th floor, you know, the conceptual level, pretty, pretty clearly. It, <laughs> it was lightning. <laughs> there was a separate me sitting under this tree, and it seemed like a very serious situation. Uh, <laughs> so I started bargaining with God, <laughs> and I... <laughs> What else do you do? And I said, I'll be good. <laughs> and then that didn't work, you know, and said, I'll be better. I'll be better. <laughs> I'll be better than good. I'll be like really good. And it just got worse, you know. And I kept looking around and it kept, it was incredible. It, it just kept circling around and circling around and there was never a break anywhere in the clouds. Um, so I thought, well, that was really helpful. That didn't work. Um, and I just had to get to this other place. I mean, it was so painful. And then I finally thought, this is really unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was like, oh, you know, this is like really unpleasant. You know, it was, that's all it was. You know, it was just so unpleasant. And it was just a complete change. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't make it pleasant. You know, and this is one of the things that are, it's so interesting for us, I think, because just because I accepted that it was unpleasant, it stayed really unpleasant. Like, it was so cold, and it was so, you know, just uncomfortable under that tree, you know, and it was just wetter and wetter and colder and colder, and, you know, more and more lightning and fear of death, and, you know, it was just a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> a very long, unpleasant experience. Um, and it finally st stopped a bit, and I walked back to the um, cabin, and I was walking through this field, and I just felt so yucky, like I felt so uncomfortable. And it was still cold and rainy, uh, and I walked up to the road, and I was just about to the cabin, 
trying to get to the hot water. And this car came by. And this, uh, these old students that I knew was, were in the car. And um, I know them really well. And they, they were so old, the conditions there are too hard for them to sit or practice. They were just coming to visit me. And so they rolled down the window. And they're like, hi, Michelle. And I'm like, and they said, how are you? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not, that I'm not in the best mood at the moment, but I'm going to be better soon. You know, I'll take a hot shower. And, and they're like, what's wrong? And I said, well, I've just been caught in this lightning storm <laughs> for two hours and it's not been very pleasant. And this woman, I had spent a couple of years with trying to teach her to like open to nature. And <laughs> you know, and it was like work. You know, we were working on this for years. Like, you know, how important, how pleasant it is to open to nature. And she looked at me like she couldn't believe it. And she said, "But Michelle, I thought you liked nature." <laughs> and I said, "Well, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> nature is unpleasant." <clears throat> Life can change so, so quickly. You know, it can seem like it's going our way, then it seems like it doesn't go our way. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda, To Sadness. Sadness, I need your black wing for a moment for a short lifetime. Take the light from me and let me feel myself lost and miserable, trembling among the threads of twilight, receiving into my soul the trembling hands of the rain. Facing change really means facing multi-dimensional levels of reality. And when we face change, and I've heard you know, so many people saying how they're facing their assumptions about life, you know, their opinions about life, and even, I would say, our righteousness about life. It's like, how do we think life should be versus how is life really? And so much of the practice is facing how we think people should be, or how we think we should be, or how life should go, and getting that it's so much out of our control. Now, so we face a lot of our grief and our despair in this process of trying to control how life is, and then really getting that it changes, and it's not so much in our control. I had an experience with my sister this year, um, where I had spent months um, trying to um, encourage her to uh, get hospice involved with her care before she died. But because of um, our difficult family, uh, it didn't seem to be in her control to do that. And I was looked at as the bad guy for trying to push it, and so I had to back off. But then at a certain point, um, and I wasn't allowed much contact with her, um, she was put in this nursing home that wasn't a good place. 
And I kept struggling with that place of, well, do I accept this or fight? But I knew it would be worse for her if I did fight it. Uh, so I called one day, kind of sensing that I, I tried to call when no one would be around, and um, I got her. And she was crying, and she said, take me home. And I was like, uh-oh. It was probably one of the biggest challenges of my life. And I, so I, I really did everything I could on the relative level of existence on that tenth floor to get her out. But I had to do it in a hidden way. And I really worked hard at it, and then I had to let go. Um, and it was so hard, and I was at the, um, our land on the big island, which is a very powerful uh, place, and I knew that that would be a good place to be. Um, and I had this sense, well, maybe I have to bring her home psychically, you know, maybe I have to bring her home, you know, in a different way than maybe I'm going to be able to uh, physically. And I was very inspired and I went down to the, uh, this place in the ocean that I had taken pictures of and she loved and just sat there for hours and hours and I felt like there was really no separation and I really brought her home. You know, in some ways you can think of the practice, you know, think of the Buddha as calling you home. You know, it's like you're calling the children home when you practice. It's like you're calling the heart home. And I really felt the, the, that validated and the power of that. You know, so even without words or communicating with her, I felt okay. Um, and yet, of course, I wanted the physical, um, her physical being to be okay as well. Um, but I didn't hear anything. And then that afternoon, I spent time again um, and I sang her a song that we sang when we were children for a, a long time. And I was just listening. You know, I wasn't controlling anything. I was just listening. And then I felt, oh, I'll build her a fire. You know, and I didn't think about it. I just built this fire. And I spent, again, most of the night with this fire by the ocean. And then I really tried to listen again. And I called. Um, when I when I thought I would get her alone again, and it had worked, the whole thing worked. It was like she got home, um, and people were out of the house for a moment, trying to get some food and stuff for her. Although she was just uh, sucking ice cubes by this point, um, and she said, "This was just the most amazing thing." She said, um, "I heard you singing the song." And then she said, I was so cold. Thank you for building me the fire. And it, it was just, you know, you might think that you're doing this practice in isolation, you know, but you're really connected to everyone in the world. And sometimes we get this real gift of validation. It's like, for me, that validated my whole life, you know. Um, and it was so beautiful. And yet I couldn't control the whole thing. And yet, hmm, how amazing, how beautiful that I really got to see that it doesn't depend on time. It doesn't depend on space. The heart really is everywhere at all times. And there are no boundaries.
Henry David Thoreau wrote, the true harvest of my daily life is somewhat as intangible and indescribable as the times of morning or evening. It is a little stardust caught, a segment of the rainbow I have clutched. Now, so matter what floor we're on, 10th floor, 5th floor, no floor, 1st floor, really the present moment is truly intangible and indescribable. And it, in some ways, life is so incredibly ordinary and incredibly mysterious, no matter what floor we, on, we are on, because it's all present. And that, that's so unfathomable, but so inspiring that we can be free in all of this mystery. You know, that's probably the most um, mysterious thing of all. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.